We are live. You are listening to Forward Guidance Live. I'm Jack Farley, and I have the pleasure to be joined once again by Daniel Nielsen, monetary economist, author of the soon-parted newsletter, as well as the author of the book about Minsky, the very influential economist. Dan, it's so great to have you here. Good to be with you again, Jack. So let's just, I'm going to give the audience a sense of the topics we're going to be covering. Uh, the European Central Bank met yesterday, so we're going to talk about that. You are looking at an international liquidity crisis that's related to the dollar. Uh, then we're going to be talking about swap lines. And finally, I want to get your thoughts on uh, uh, Ben Bernanke's Nobel Prize. But let's start, Dan, with the European Central Bank. So yesterday on October 27th, uh, President ECB President Christine Lagarde uh, announced that she'd be raising rates 75 basis points from 0.75% to 1.50%. Uh, what did you make from this meeting? Did you have any notes on the balance sheet? And uh, how do you, th do you think that this uh, meeting was, was received in a way that you, you think might be incorrect? Sure. Thanks, Jack. Uh, yeah, obviously, the ECB is on everyone's mind. It's the number two central bank in the world in the global monetary system. Uh, and certainly worth watching. The three-quarter point interest rate rise that we got yesterday was, I would say, as expected. Uh, it would have been surprising if they had done otherwise. The ECB has three main policy rates, and they, they move them, most of the time, they move them in sync. That's what they did yesterday, plus 0.75 points. Um, this, uh, this, is, this is, you know, the ECB continues to see high inflation in the Eurozone, higher even than in the United States. And their playbook tells them that when interest is in, inflation is high, that interest rates have to rise. So that's what we're seeing. No huge surprise there. Uh, in terms of the balance sheet, uh, the main story is that uh, there's not a lot of contraction uh, coming. Um, maybe we can get into some of the weeds on that because there's some more technical aspects that, that they did start to work with. We'll be watching that in the weeks to come. Uh, the big picture, I mean, you, you, you pointed to it already, Jack. The, is, there, uh, is there some misinterpretation of what, the, of what the ECB is doing? And this is something that I've, that I've been thinking about um, and have been writing about in advance of the decisions. I haven't incorporated uh, all of yesterday's news into this yet, but I think the perspective stands. I think that there is uh, a perspective out there that the, the, the global monetary system is flat, what I mean by that is that uh, this idea is that each central bank is kind of free to make its own policy. The Fed does its thing based on U.S. conditions. The ECB does its thing based on Eurozone conditions. Bank of Japan does its own thing based on what's happening in Japan. And that these, that these things can be more or less independent. Inflation is high in one place, so you get higher interest rates there. But inflation is lower somewhere else, so you get lower interest rates there. As though everyone's free to make their own uh, independent choice. And that perspective has led people to read a lot into some language changes in the ECB statement yesterday. Uh, very, really pretty, like, wordsmithing type of stuff. Very small edits to the way they're communicating their forward guidance are leading people to say uh, that this looks like a dovish turn from the ECB. Uh, this, I think, is probably, uh, this is probably a misinterpretation because that idea comes from the, the idea that this is a flat system. That idea is wrong. The system is not flat. And so interpretations based on that perspective, I think, are missing the point. Thanks, Dan. And yes, uh, the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, had been doing forward guidance saying, 
at the next several meetings, we, we will be hiking interest rates or something to that effect. Yesterday, she came out and said, if you could just see on the middle of the screen, Ray, uh, uh, the screen there, we expect to raise interest rates further. So instead of saying we will and have it sort of be a, a pretty definite thing, they're saying expect, which yep. is you know kind of implies a subjunctive case, a, a would, as if there is a chance that that they won't. Uh, Dan, you were telling me that the reason that the European Central Bank is hiking interest rates, the stated reason that they're giving, is to fight inflation. And yes, raising interest rates does fight inflation. But it's you know the best kept, kept secret. Excuse me, the worst kept secret in economics is that the bulk of European inflation is due to the energy story, uh, and, and and you know the ECB can print money, can print euros, but it cannot print oil, cannot print natural gas. So if hiking interest rates is somewhat you know very ineffective in in fighting supply chain inflation on on the energy side. Uh, why is Christine Lagarde hiking interest rates so drastically? And I'll give you a, a hint. Uh, you were saying that the ECB is hiking by 75 basis points this week because something else is going to hike by a similar amount next week. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, the opposite of this idea that, you know, that the system is flat and that everybody can do their own thing is, as I said, I think wrong and uh, or at least mostly wrong. And the and what's right, what is more helpful, as you're as you're indicating, Jack, is that uh, all of these central banks are interacting within one system, and that system is anything but flat. Uh, the ECB is the number two central bank in the world, and that means it's ahead of all the other central banks in the world except the Fed. And the Fed is meeting next week. Widely expected that the Fed will be hiking. The basic the baseline of my view is that the Fed is going to hike. The ECB's got to hike too, so they can talk about. It, they can talk about monetary policy in a lot of different ways and economics, the theory uh, of economics, you know, uh, which dominates the, the way that central bankers talk about what they're doing, says that there's a relationship directly between inflation and interest rates. They 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 talk that way and they and they might even believe it sometimes. Uh, but what economic theory doesn't help us with very much, but what a lot of market participants would say is kind of obvious uh, is that there's a, a close relationship between short-term interest rates in the different uh, uh, regional or, or national monetary systems, and the dollar is the one that sets the tune for everybody else. So, uh, so the ECB maybe can get a little bit of, of leeway, but they're not really free to just look around and see what Eurozone inflation looks like and raise or not raise. Uh, they have to always be thinking about the distance between Eurozone short-term interest rates and the Fed's short-term interest rates and, uh, and, and whether that's getting wider or narrower. So all that is compounded by the other problem you mentioned, which is central banks, the, the, the ECB uh, and the Fed and other central banks are all raising interest rates to try to slow down demand or something like that because they want to bring inflation down. But as you said, inflation is coming from a pretty limited number of spots, the energy crisis right now being, being one of the big ones. Supply chain disruptions, uh, still a factor, maybe a little bit less than six months ago or a year ago, uh, but also, but you know, that's still happening. Um, these things are not necessarily going to be affected by, by interest rate rises. So I think we're headed for a messy time where policymakers are pushing certain buttons uh, but but those buttons are not directly connected to the thing that they're trying to that they're trying to fix. So so it could get messy while uh, while these uh, the the effects of tighter policy flow through the economic system. 
So in other words, the European Central Bank is just doing the best it can to keep up. If if it doesn't hike interest rates, the dollar will strengthen further against the euro. The euro will weaken further. It's like you know, so you know, you're you're in the, the college system. Uh, you're a very you know, uh, um, accomplished academic, and it, it's academia. It, it's a com- competitive world. And like if you're a grad student getting your PhD. Every hour that you're not reading, you're competing against someone who is reading, you know, and every hour that the ECB has its rates below the Fed, that's another hour where, you know, Europeans say, hey, I'm actually going to deposit my money in American, the American financial system and generate 3% uh, instead of getting 0.75%. So Christine Lagarde said, hey, we got to we got to fight and we're going to go to uh, a 1.50%. Now I want to pick open a chart. Uh, Actually, before we get into that chart. Um, Dan, you had a fantastic quote from from your uh, article called Dear Dollar on your soon-parted newsletter, which I recommend everyone check out. Uh, I'll read from it now. The likelihood is increasing that an international liquidity crisis will emerge before the Fed succeeds at stamping out price growth, i.e. inflation. The more we cling to the pretense that the system is flat, the more likely that becomes. So how is what, what do you mean by that, Dan? Sure. Yeah. Uh, thanks. This is uh, this is about my my uh, my commitment to the art of Fed watching. Um, I I wrote that piece thinking about the minutes from the September FOMC meeting, so the, the previous meeting, um, and looking ahead to the next one, which is next week. The one of the the interesting tidbits, if you if you read those things in their entirety, is that the Fed observes that uh, they've been raising interest rates you know, pretty fast, fastest uh, increase uh, that we've got on record. Um, Certainly a huge change from the last 15 years. Um, And so far, the response in the U.S. economic system, U.S. GDP, U.S. prices has been minimal. They say a couple of highly interest sensitive sectors have responded. You can think about housing, for example, where the where mortgage rates uh, key off of a lot of the activity keys off of the ability to, of uh, purchasers to borrow. But for the most part, there's been no decline in U.S. activity. After that meeting, just uh, earlier this week, we saw we saw third quarter GDP, U.S. GDP at plus 2.8 percent, higher than expected. And uh, and September inflation was still very high, uh, over 8 percent. So what does this say? The Fed has been tightening, tightening, tightening. Uh, and is not really having an effect on U.S. economic activity. They're acting on a theory that says that when you raise interest rates, that should bring down uh, demand, and that should bring down GDP, and it should bring down prices with it. And that's what they're trying to do. That's what the minutes say that they're trying to do. If you read it, if you read the whole thing, what you also see is that there's almost no mention of international financial conditions, and where those international financial conditions are mentioned it doesn't say anything about the dollar, about the U.S. dollar as the central clearing trading currency for the entire global economic trade and financial system. The, that function of the dollar is not mentioned. But everyone who knows markets and everyone in a central bank that's not the Fed, and frankly, probably everyone in the FOMC meeting, all know that in fact, it's dollar monetary policy that drives world monetary policy. And so any U.S. rate decision has a big effect everywhere else. My suspicion is that they know that perfectly well, but because of the the laws, the the acts of Congress that create the Fed and create their jobs, they're not really in a position to to discuss that uh, in the the minutes of the Fed. It's not something they can just go out and say. 
they must know that that's what's happening. The end result of all this is that the Fed is tightening, tightening, tightening financial conditions. The biggest effect that we're seeing of that is around the world, in Japan, in the UK, in Korea, uh, in Europe in certain ways, in Switzerland. Um, we're seeing that. And all of that is at least in part driven by the Fed's making overnight funding in dollars more expensive. That's pushing up pressure in the system everywhere. But if the Fed is only looking for a result, an, out, an outcome of this policy in U.S. productive activity, then I think it's, there's quite a high risk and an increasing risk that something is going to break in some other place. And we don't quite know where yet, but we get some indications um, other than the U.S. before the Fed sees the result that it wants to see in U.S. activity. So I think we could see we already saw a, a crisis in U.K. sovereign debt. Uh, we could see other kinds of uh, liquidity crises like that bubble up smaller and larger. Uh, obviously, the UK crisis was was fairly big, uh, but not but not at a global scale, right? It wasn't enough to destabilize the global financial system. So the Fed doesn't really have to respond to that. Um, I think we're going to see increasing, increasing tension. And it looks to me very much like uh, financial pressures are rising all around the world faster than US activity is responding to higher interest rates. Uh, so that leads me to the to the quote that you read, Jack, which is, I think a liquidity event, a financial event outside of the U.S. is starting to seem more likely and frankly looks looks like it will be coming sooner than uh, than U.S. activity drops off. And that, I think, is a worrying thought. So the Federal Reserve's actions act with a long and variable lag on US economy, the U.S. economy, which has been slow to slow. It's interesting. The Fed says only a couple interest rates sensitive, but it's like housing and autos are, are, are a pretty big part of the U.S. economy. Yeah. But they've been much quicker on deteriorating international financial conditions. So let's put up this chart. Uh, this is of... Uh, sh very short-term interest rates by different central banks. The dark uh, red is the federal funds rates, so the U.S. Uh, uh, green is Korea. Yellow is uh, Japanese, the Bank of Japan rate, which is still at zero. Uh, excuse me, still, still, I think, mildly negative. Um, the orange is the Bank of England, GBP, uh, uh, British pound rate. And you'll note that uh, the British pound and the, the South, uh, South Korean central bank, they had a little bit of a head start uh, earlier this year. However, the Federal Reserve has rapidly uh, caught up. And now the Federal Reserve is, is, has the highest rates pretty much in, in town when it comes to de developed markets. Obviously, you know, emerging markets like Brazil have, uh, you know, in the, in the teen rates, uh, uh, um, double digit in interest rates. Uh, and so this is a chart that a lot of, uh, you know, some some folks watching this might have seen, but, you know, Dan, what I love about your work, you uh, took these charts and added a little detail, which is you looked at uh, Bank of Japan, Bank of Korea, Bank of England, and the European Central Bank and compared them to the dollar. So this is uh, how much lower are these rates relative to uh, the the uh, Fed funds rates. Um, so just tell us, what is the significance of, of here where you know now the Japanese uh, rates are three percent lower than what the Fed is doing? what are what are the knock-on effects of that? And you know to the extent that it that it uh, causes a strong dollar, what are the knock effects of that? Sure. yeah, I love this I love this chart and uh, and you know readers of my blog will know that I, I spend a lot of time thinking in charts and you've chosen two here that I that I really like because there's they're really revealing about how this works. the 
you know, the, the chart that we had up just a second ago is that's the flat system, right? That says that every central bank gets to choose its own, gets to choose its own interest rate. And we measure them each as independent numbers. And the perspective that I bring to this says, no, actually, this is a, this is a structured system. The dollar is the best money. So you, you pay a price, uh, an, an abstract kind of price. If you're offering less interest than the dollar, then your currency is going to suffer one way or the other. So that's what this graph measures. How much, as you said, how much lower than the dollar are these other places? And I chose four, four places that are on my mind recently, but you could extend the analysis. Uh, you could think about any, about any official rate uh, in this way. So what it says is, uh, is that the, the dollar has hiked faster um, and more than anyone else. So all of these spreads are currently negative. Um, and what that means is that uh, if you have a choice between holding your overnight money in dollars on the one hand, and let's say euros on the other hand, uh, that every time the Fed hikes, then you're going to move some money. Uh, you're going to move some money from euros into dollars to take advantage of those higher rates. Not everybody can take advantage of that. Not everybody's in a position to choose between dollars or euros, but enough people are uh, that that represents a pretty sizable flow. And when that happens, the exchange rate falls. So people are selling euros and buying dollars. That raises the exchange value of the dollar relative to the euro. It pushes down the value of the euro relative to the dollar. Same thing. That's happening around the world. So this is, this is the underlying cause of dollar strength. And if you plot these four exchange rates, which I do in my post, if you look at all of them, what you see is that uh, all four of these currencies are, 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 falling, are falling in exchange value relative to the dollar. That's not four different things. That's one thing. And that's what that is, is the dollar becoming stronger. Oh, there it is. Perfect. Yeah, th this, is, this is not four independent currency movements. This is one big story, which is, uh, which is that the dollar is getting more valuable. Uh, I would say this is a confirmation of the dollar's role as central to the entire global system. And, and I think that people should look at this and see the vertical lines, the gray vertical lines are days on which the Fed changed interest rates. And so the five in the, in, that are recent, uh, the five and 22 are all hikes. If you look back in 2020, you see a couple that are, that are decreases at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. So the big story here uh, is that the Fed is pushing up dollar interest rates and other countries are trying to follow but even so the fed is going faster and so those interest rate spreads in general have been widening and that interest rate differential explains uh the bulk of what's happening with global interest rates so what is it what does all this mean we're headed a little bit into the unknown we've had a pandemic a war uh, and a lot of disruptions that have followed uh from those from those big global events a lot of other disruptions, people's lives changing, production systems are changing. You could follow semiconductors. You could follow all, all of the details. We're moving to a system which is going to be structured somewhat differently. It seems to me that the evidence says that the dollar is still calling the shots for everybody else. The dollar is confirmed at the center and everybody else has to think of themselves uh, in relationship to the dollar. And uh, the prices of goods are really still continuing to change pretty fast. That's going to be a slower process, obviously, than monetary policy. So, so maybe inflation has peaked. Uh, maybe not. It'll still be some months before we have a better sense of that. Uh, in this new world, stuff is more expensive, and the dollars is now becoming more expensive. Uh, and we'll, we'll have to see how all that plays out. But each step, uh, each step that makes dollar funding more expensive, that puts an added burden on anyone who's borrowed in dollars, and anyone who's borrowed in other currencies are affected by, by these other interest rates. And 
global trade is being squeezed by by changing prices in the dollar. So so all of this is uh, is is in an effort to clamp down on demand is squeezing financial conditions everywhere. And uh, and in my view, that builds up stress, although it's a little hard to say exactly where the stress is going to blow up into something uh, into something bigger that we can see. Any guesses on where what, what, what would blow up first? I don't think that I have guesses that are much better than anyone else's, but here's what I watch. Uh, we've seen the UK guilds crisis and, you know, people have read that in terms of UK p- pension funds and liability driven investment. Um, I'm not an expert on that. I, I, I know enough to, to sort of think it through. I think that's right. That is what drove it. But also the effect of, of tighter financial conditions are that, that any system like UK pension funds that had a little bit of instability in it or a little bit of illiquidity built into it is getting squeezed more and more. We, we're not going to necessarily know in advance which one pops. Afterwards, we can look back and say, oh, yeah, I see what they were doing. They were using derivatives in a certain way, and that left them vulnerable to these changes in interest rates. Um, so it could, be, it could be UK pension funds again, right? Um, it could be that a big move in the exchange rate uh, really strongly affects some big uh, import-exporting country, right? So, so it's easy to see. You know, Turkey has been in a has been in a difficult situation. They have a lot of their trade is big relative to their to their financial flows. So, the changing price of the dollar could suddenly show up uh, show up there. Um, Korea and Japan have both. Uh, J- Japan has been actively um, uh, intervening in its exchange rate. Uh, you saw the shape of the curve on that on that graph. We had the yen has been falling relative to the dollar, like everything has. Um, the, the Bank of Japan was intervening. Uh, Bank of Korea, there was a lot of speculation that they would intervene. So, so it could show up in exchange rates, an exchange rate crisis where some major currency collapses in value, and that just becomes a, a very complex stress on uh, on their economic system. Uh, sometimes a falling exchange rate can benefit some parties in the country. Ex- you know, exporters uh, whose costs are in local currency and whose income is in dollar, they benefit from that. So you have to kind of see it from the macro position because maybe those same companies have to buy uh, inputs. Maybe they're importing some of the inputs to their process and, and those inputs are in dollars. So again, I don't think, I- I'm not confident in my ability to predict exactly where this crisis is going to show up and I, I wouldn't claim to. What I can do is once we start to see where the tension is, then we can fit it into an understanding of the global system. Uh, and I think that's helpful. Uh, obviously, obviously, everyone's trying to predict the future. And uh, I think this is, you know, we can get some ideas by thinking about it this way. But, uh, but in, in the end, there's going to be a little bit of guesswork. Dan, are there any historical parallels that stand out to you? You know, I'm just rereading one of, one of my favorite books, uh, like the, the Central Bankers who, who Broke the World. And the the Federal Reserve in the late 1920s, like 1926, 1927, I think, uh, had interest rates that were at the time quite low, about 4%. Uh, but this, the fundamental strength of the, the American economy, just so much gold was, was flowing into the country um, that basically uh, England, the Bank of England and the Bank of France and the Bank of Germany, they needed, they were like begging the Fed to cut interest rates so that the dollar wouldn't wouldn't strengthen. Mm-hmm. Um you know, how do you, how do you think this this plays out? And if if there is a, not a I'm not going to use the word pivot, but a, some sort of intervention to stamp out uh, this a, a big financial uh, global breakdown, how do you think the Federal Reserve will intervene? Uh, will it be by dialing back the reduction in its balance sheet by quantitative easing? 
or maybe even going back to quantitative easing, expanding, expanding its balance sheet? Will it be in cutting rates or will it be in swap lines? Which, you know, Dan, I, I feel like I and a lot of like, you know, generally, you know, people who read the Wall Street Journal, like we, we don't know what swap lines are. So we, we you've done some great work on how the US Fed is already extending swap lines um, to the, the Swiss National Bank. And, and by the way, that, you know, the, the, the swap lines were integral to sort of rescuing the financial system in, in March of 2020. Yeah. Um, so I know I know I threw I threw a lot out at, at you, That's but okay. uh, to take it take it where you want to. I got it. Uh, yeah. This is, so, I, you know, the, the, I think the question really is about um, how might the structure of the system at a whole at the very highest level, how might that be affected by events to come? And the way you're framing the question, I completely agree with. Right. Because actually, if you watch the system, most of the change, most of the systemic change happens on a handful of days that we could count out, like one day per decade, something gigantic happens. And that is when most of the action, when most of the action is, it's a, it's a, you know, these three or four or five Sigma events, if you want to look at it that way. So, um, so first of all, the Fed knows that, and they're trying to think ahead. Uh, they're trying not to have those days ever happen. That is, that is a simple way to understand the Fed's relationship to the global monetary system. Um, but they do happen. And when it does, that's when we get a whole new structure for, for how everything fits together. So what could we, what could we anticipate? Well, if things break down in the U S financial system, that's what we saw in 2008, for example, um, in 2000, um, in 2020, it basically didn't happen. The fed intervened so fast that there were some instability, but, but we didn't see big institutional failures in the same way that we did in, in 2008. Um, the Fed has lots of channels for intervening, and you would expect that interest rate rises would stop. Maybe, maybe interest rates would come back down. You would expect some expansion of the balance sheet. However, I want to say clearly that I think that's not, uh, that's not the likely scenario over the next little bit, because the Fed has just got done uh, adding a huge amount of liquidity, and most of that has gone into the U.S. financial system and even into U.S. household balance sheets. So there's actually a lot of financial resilience still there in the US financial system, which is an ambiguous signal because that's probably good in the sense if you're worried about US financial stability, but probably bad if you say, well, that means that they're gonna keep hiking more because, uh, because the US banks can take it. So, that's, so you're gonna see more of these consequences elsewhere that we were talking about. So I think US financial instability is not on the cards uh, really right now. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. But when it comes to foreign instability, what can you explain? Yeah. What right now do you think is is the greatest cause of instability? We talked about rates. You know, uh, Federal Reserve rates are, are higher than Bank of England rates, for example. But there's also quantitative tightening, reducing its balance sheet. And if I recall, yeah. the taper tantrum in uh, 2014, rates the Federal Reserve rates interest rates were still at zero, and it's not like they stopped. Uh, selling bonds or even letting them roll off, all they did is stop expanding their balance sheet and have it hold flat. And that caused you know many emerging market currencies, I think Indonesia, exactly. uh, uh, to sort of melt down. So uh, exactly. how uh, how do you compare, like which is bigger, I guess, you know, the, the impact of quantitative tightening versus interest rates? I know, you know there are a lot of smart people who have di differing opinions on this. Sure. Um, they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. And some days it's one and some days it's the, it's the other. I think, so if we think about the balance sheet, right? The, the Fed, the main thing that happened during the quantitative easing period uh, from 2020 until pretty recently, until earlier this year, is that the Fed was a big buyer in treasury markets. 
also mortgages, but but let's stick with treasuries for the moment because that treasuries uh, are one of the paths to the global economic system. So again, the Fed was focused on U.S. economic conditions, and that was how it rationalized this process of buying treasuries. Um, but everyone knows that the that the treasuries are also uh, treasury securities, U.S. treasury securities, U.S. sovereign debt is money for uh, reserve foreign reserve accounts, official reserve accounts of central banks and uh, governments around the world. So the Fed is thinking about quantitative easing uh, in light of its U.S. conditions, but it has a big effect elsewhere. Now, in the last, uh, really, it's only gotten started in the last couple of months, let's say since September, the Fed is now a seller, a net seller, let's say, in the Treasury market. It's, it's not quite selling. It's allowing securities to, to, to run off. Yeah. Um, but, but, but so now the Fed's involvement in the Treasury market has reversed. So this could uh, disrupt the global market for U.S. sovereign debt. And, uh, and, you know, the Treasury and the Fed and a lot of smart investors are worried about the stability of that market. For example, the taper tantrum, for example, also at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there were some issues. Uh, there were some issues in liquidity in the Treasury market. And that could be serious because if you can't buy and sell U.S. sovereign debt when you need to, then that's there's no better there's no better asset for a lot of participants in the financial system. If you can't buy and sell when you need to, then that's a that's a real a major illiquidity at the very core of the system. Now, since since the uh, since the end of the global financial crisis, the Fed has established a couple of different mechanisms uh, to get liquidity out to other central banks in an emergency, because it's always had to do it on an ad hoc basis. Uh, in the past, for example, in 2008, it was making up the rules as it went along. So they've tried to set down some rules now so that at the next crisis, they don't have to, uh, they don't have to make it up. And we got two things. Uh, the Fed can lend repo to other central banks, can lend dollars through repo markets to other central banks. And for the top tier of central banks, um, there's about five of them, ECB, Bank of Japan, Canada, uh, Swiss National Bank, um, they can use these swap lines, uh, which maybe we can come to now. The swap lines are a way that the Fed can get dollars out into internationally into the global financial system extremely quickly. Um, this is not driving. This is not driving events right now. But the thing is, you know, at the beginning of 2020, 300 billion dollars went out the door in 10 days uh, when those swap lines were turned on. So this is it can happen fast, and this is something we need to we need to be aware of. Mm. Uh, thanks, Dan. I want to ask you about swap lines. And I also want to ask you just about like the, the feedback loop between treasuries, because everyone's talking about how it's not just the Fed that's dumping treasuries, again, not selling, they're just letting them rolling off. Everyone's dumping treasuries, uh, commercial banks, uh, foreign central banks and stuff. Uh, but first, I just wanted to uh, just uh, announce that uh, today's uh, video is sponsored by Cuppy's Event Driven Monitor or uh, Kedem that tracks event driven opportunities in the stock market, uh, frequently referred to as special situations. Uh, it's a it's a product for uh, high net worth individuals and, and uh, hedge funds, and for it's a it's a research partner of Forward Guidance, and Forward Guidance is running a special. Um, where folks can get $1,000 off if they use uh, the, the code and link. So if you want to check that out, uh, all the links are in the description. Uh, Dan, now let's just get back to business. Um, yeah, let, let's get into the swap lines. Because Dan, okay, you know, interest rates, I feel like some people get interest rates. Uh, balance sheet, quantitative easing, balance sheet goes up, quantitative tightening, it goes down. Taper is when it's flat. Okay, we get that. But then, yeah, this whole swap line thing, I feel like that is really impenetrable. Uh, 
to, to whom to whom are the the Fed when they extend liquidity? What exactly are they doing? Is it a loan? What is the duration of that loan? Is it is it collateralized? Uh, you know, how does the Fed make sure that it, it's paid back? And you know, what it, um, uh, is is it successful at all in, in injecting liquidity? And, and if it is, why do you think that's the case? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the swap lines are uh, are first of all super important, uh, and as you say, a little bit uh, a little bit hard to hard to get your head around. Uh, first of all, FX the, the the FX swaps are a standard financial instrument, so so we can we can get a little bit just by understanding what an FX swap is. Uh, it's a short term loan in one currency secured by a deposit in another currency. It's a money market instrument, so it's a way of, of, uh, of lending money. That's how you should think about it. There's a foreign exchange kind of aspect to it, but really it's about lending uh, dollars for the most part, um, although you can do them in other currencies. With the central banks, we're always talking about dollars. Um, so it's a short-term loan from where one party provides dollars, the other side gets dollars, and as collateral, they post uh, an, a deposit in, their own, in, in another currency loan of one currency secured by a deposit in another currency. Okay, that's an FX swap in general. Central banks can use these, and central banks have a particular advantage in the FX swap market. I apologize, Dan. It's a loan secured by another deposit? It's a loan secured by cash in another currency. So I lend you $100, and you put 105 euros on deposit with me. After a short period of time, uh, you give me back my dollars, and I give you back your euros. In the meantime, you can use the dollars uh, to do whatever you need to do. So how long uh, the, the Fed uh, most typically uses this, the uh, extends seven day dollar liquidity uh, in the swap market, but it has been as little as overnight. And it's been in recent times as much as three months. Um, they can be rolled over. So it's a seven day loan, but you can roll it over week after week after week. And these the swap lines are occurring between central banks. So between technocratic policymakers uh, around the world, there's a, a very high level of understanding between them. There's not going to be a lot of question of like, do you actually need this or, or that kind of thing. It's a pretty, um, I don't want to say mechanical because you have to make the call and ask, uh, but, but it's going to happen. If you, need the, if you need the dollars, the Fed is, is going to do that. And we learned that in 2008. Yeah. They're not going to let the global financial system fall apart. And this is, and the swap lines are a good tool for that. And why might foreign central banks uh, need dollars? I get, okay, people have debts that are denominated in dollars. They can't print dollars, so they need to, to, to pay that off. And the, the yep. Fed floats them sort of dollars to, to, to settle that loan. But what do those foreign central banks actually do with those dollars? Do they give them to the commercial banks or is it, is it used to settle their own debts? Um, what sort of happens? And yeah, why are we seeing, um, why are we seeing the Swiss National Bank Accept uh, a swap line. Is this just sort of a cosmetic thing, or you know, is this a sign of what's to come? Sure. Um, right. So, so the what does another central bank do with the dollars? That's the first question, right? And so, um, you know, the the central bank, each central bank, let's say the Swiss National Bank, um, it its own business. It has to do in its own currency, Swiss francs, but uh, but it's going to have some some foreign assets. Um, uh, euros and dollars for the Swiss National Bank for the most part. But their banking, the Swiss banking system uh, is like their international banks. They're going to have a lot of dollar business, including some dollar debts. So just as you said, Jack, uh, if for whatever reason, a domestic banking system is having trouble coming up with the dollars it needs to pay short-term debts, the central bank, in this case, maybe the, the Swiss National Bank, for example, can activate its swap line, get dollars from the Fed, 
and then lend those dollars on to its own banking system. And it does that through whatever channel, uh, whatever channel it normally uses to provide liquidity to its own uh, through its own bank. So that could be different from place to place. The Fed doesn't care, right? The Fed gives the dollars to the central bank, and then it's the Swiss National Bank or the ECB or the Bank of Japan that that figures out how to get those dollars to commercial banks in their jurisdiction. And then the, then it's got to get the dollars back, and then it's got to repay the FX uh, swap back to the Fed. Okay, uh, that, that makes sense. Yeah. So what we, we're showing on screen now is uh, just, just the mechanics that of, of you work. So uh, the Federal Reserve lends dollar reserves, and it's, it's collateralized by those, in this case, uh, Swiss, Swiss franc deposits. Um, now let's go to this previous chart, which shows the, excuse me, actually, uh, sorry. Let's go to this chart, which shows the outstanding uh, central bank swap lines from 2019 to now. And as people, folks uh, can see on this chart now, if, if they're you know, watching it on YouTube, um, in March of 2020, the Fed extended an enormous amount of liquidity, um, seeing uh, $400 billion uh, to the Bank of Japan in yellow, the European Central Bank. Uh, what were these uh, uh, squeezes? Like you know, when people say, Okay, the the dollars release, the dollar reserves are like. Why did those pe people need uh, need money? Was was it that the dollar went up so much that they literally couldn't afford it? Like there just wasn't enough cash in the till, so to speak. Or was it that it's not that the it was more expensive to do? You couldn't do it at all because there was just no liquidity. Yeah, I think it was. This was right. So just remember what this was like. Right, March twenty twenty. Everybody experienced this in some way. If you're sitting in a financial institution or a central bank. Um, then you experience a particular kind of panic at that moment uh, as the whole financial system was trying to digest this very suddenly changed uh, situation as the world came, started to come to terms with, uh, with COVID-19. So the way that uh, banks and central banks uh, around the world respond to panic is, I need to get into cash. And in the global, you know, in the global system, when you, when you say, I need to get into cash, you basically mean I need to get into dollars. So everyone was just, it was different everywhere, right? It depended on what you were doing in February of 2020, but all of a sudden you needed to exit that, uh, pay off whatever you could because it was just suddenly unclear uh, where the world was headed and, uh, and things were day to day or, or, or even hour to hour at certain points. Everyone rushed into dollars. In part, the Fed was really proactive with this, right? It actually pushed the dollars out the door because it was still, 2008 was still pretty fresh in their minds. And that was what had been, that was, what they had done in 2008. Totally different circumstances, right? I mean, the, the 2008 crisis, mortgage crisis, Lehman Brothers, AIG, 2020 is a global pandemic, uh, COVID-19, you know, we, 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 know, we know the story. Uh, really different circumstances. But the Fed, you know, nobody knew what to do in 2020. And so people pulled out whatever playbook they had. And the playbook the Fed had was the 2008 playbook. They pushed dollars out the door. It was, uh, it was if, you, if you zoom into this data, it's like 300 billion that was basically 10 days in mid-March 2020. And within the next 20 days, it was another 100 billion. And then it peaks out around 400, as you can see in the chart. Um, I want to point out also that it comes down pretty fast, too. Uh, not quite as fast as it went up, but it's, uh, but it's, you know, within six months, almost all of that is repaid. And when it, within a year, it's actually back down to zero. So this is, a, this is a tool that you can turn on. The Fed can turn it on. And, and get a huge amount of dollars into the system very, very fast. But then they try to get it turned off again uh, pretty fast too, because you don't want the system running on the swap lines 
uh, on a, on an ongoing basis. And you can see from most of 2021 and most of 2022, we've had almost no, almost no activity in the swap lines and nothing, nothing big. Right. Almost, almost no activity. But for, for folks who are watching this on their iPhone, they're going to have to zoom in really far to see the, the current action in 2022, uh, which is a tiny little blot of dark blue. But we can actually zoom in on this on the following chart. Oh, excuse me. Um, uh, right here. So this is just 2022. And this shows the European Central Bank swap lines and the Swiss, uh, Swiss National Bank swap lines now. So now we're only at what? Uh, nine or ten billion. Um, uh, yeah. So, so you you write uh, in your piece on Student Party, which I which I remember, you said it's still too soon to panic, uh, because the Swiss National Bank has activated its swap line, but you don't see this as part of a wider dollar li- liquidity crunch. Do Do you think the is there a real need for this, or do you think they're the, 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 the central banks are just sort of getting ready so that the chart doesn't go up so much if they need right. you know those hundreds of billions again? Sure. Yeah. Well. So, so there's actually a few, if you look really close, that actually all of those six central banks have actually activated their swap lines during this year. Most of them for tiny oh, wow. amounts, as you can see. The ECB yeah. uh, seems to keep its swap line open all the time. It's not a big number. Um, I mean, it would be big for you or me, but it's not big for these central banks. Um, but the news was that the Swiss National Bank had gone from zero to up to 10 or 11 billion. Um, I thought that was news and that's why I wrote about it because because these things are mostly zero and when they're not zero that usually means something is happening. Um, I actually still can't figure out exactly what it is that's happening but I am comfortable saying that there's not a reason to conclude. I I like this chart in comparison to the other one because because this looks big if you do it this way but if you put it next to 2020 it looks tiny and so I think that I just want to say to everyone that I don't think that this is the liquidity. I don't, this is not the big one that we're waiting for, right? This is not it. Um, yeah. But that said, the central banks are a little bit abstruse. The, the central bank swap lines are a little bit abstruse. And so it is worth spending a few minutes understanding them. And when they're turned on, that's usually, that's like a binary event, right? It's either zero, it's either off or on. And so when they're on, I want to understand what that means. Um, and if we know that, we know that the Fed can get $300 billion out the door in 10 days. So that means if the door is open, then, uh, then you know, you just want to have that in the back of your mind. Is that going to happen? I would not bet on it right now. Um, but when we think ahead to what a global financial event might look like, uh, I would expect these swap lines to be activated. That is, li- that is a very likely event, a likely feature of whatever the next global financial uh, liquidity crisis is so you know whenever that happens we're going to have to get into this in in a lot more depth uh i thought it was a nice uh, opportunity when the pressure's off a little bit to take it out let's okay let's remember how this works so that on the day when they when they really use it uh we're we still have it fresh in our fresh in our minds so too soon to panic this is uh this is interesting and and worth understanding but this is not uh this is not the big the big crisis that will probably eventually come but i couldn't say when uh, th- thanks, Dan. So next week, uh, the Federal Reserve will be having its meeting, and it is you know, widely anticipated to hike by 75 basis points. Someone in the comments was saying 100 basis points. I, I think it, it, that is exceptionally small chance that that will happen. Uh, it, there's a chance it could be 50, um, but it's most likely going to be 75%. I, I generally think that the interest rate futures markets are correct. Uh, you know, They have a good sense of what's going on. And if they don't have a good sense of what's going on, 
uh, Nick Timoros, uh, a legendary financial journalist from the Wall Street Journal, he will uh, let the market know that that the market is wrong. By the way, I'm actually interviewing uh, Nick Timoros with Joseph Wang on Tuesday, so folks should uh, stay tuned for that, as well as Joseph Wang and Jim Bianco on on Wednesday. Although that that may may air uh, Thursday morning. So Dan, we know they're going to hike 75 basis points. Uh, what do you expect? What are you What are you going to be looking for uh, that you think will be be significant? Uh, right. Um, yeah, I think. So agreed completely. There's no reason to think the consensus is wrong. 75 basis points is likely. And the Fed doesn't want to create surprises. So they're probably not going to create surprises. Uh, We saw GDP was high. We saw inflation was high. So we're going to get a high, big hike, 75 basis points. Is it going to be an an extra large hike, 100 basis points? Uh, That would be a surprise. Seems unlikely. Yeah. Um, What am I going to be watching for? The two big things. the first that we can see sooner will be uh, if there's any change to thinking about the overnight repo facility. So big liability on the Fed's balance sheet. This was a way to get cash into the system. Uh, banks balance sheets were tapped out. So the Fed made a way for money market funds to hold Fed liabilities. And there's $2 trillion outstanding. This is overnight repo. Um, uh, the Fed rolls it over every single day, $2 trillion. You, they've said in different ways, they've said that they want to be out of that business, but the number really has continued to climb, uh, not to fall. So I'm curious to know if there's going to be any technical adjustment to the overnight repo facility to start to steer, um, to start to steer that number back down, which yeah. I think is what they want. Um, but they haven't had any luck getting it with what they've done so far. And Dan, so, 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 sorry to interrupt. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm getting, you know, un- I'm unnecessarily uh, uh, clarifying, but what that system is basically essentially a d- deposit mechanism. Uh, I mean, the Fed doesn't call it that, but it is no. the the Fed is supp- is supplying its collateral to uh, financial institutions so that they can lend to the Fed. I mean, it's not that like, the Fed needs money. I mean, it doesn't. No. Fed no, prints no. money, but uh, and then they get a rate that is generally commensurate uh, to the Fed fund rates. It's somewhere in between the the lower bound and the upper bound. And if it that br- that breaks. Th- for the ceiling or the floor, that is very significant. Yes. Um, so I actually think, Dan, that that in that transaction where it's over $2 trillion, uh, the Fed is doing repo and the commercial, not the, the private markets are doing reverse repo on the other side of the transaction. But the Fed very confusingly calls that the reverse repo facility, even yes. though they are doing repo. And the yes. thing that they launched out in 2019 where they're doing reverse repo and the market is doing repo, they call that the repo facility. Yeah. So that's ex- yeah. extremely confusing. And it literally took me like three years to understand that. Um, they, don't make it, they don't make it easy. You're exactly right. Uh, and you're also right to think of it as a deposit facility, which if we all called it that, it would be, I think we would all understand it a little bit better because uh, it's on the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet. And you think of that as a loan, but that steers you in the wrong direction. Because if you're a bank, then you put your deposits on the liability side as well. And that's that feels different from a from a loan, but that's it still goes on the on the liability side. So the Fed's got reserve deposits, which we understand. It's also got this overnight repo facility, reverse repo facility on the liability side. But calling it a repo deposit facility makes it much clearer what it is. Money market funds have extra cash and they can deposit it at the Fed in this overnight RRP facility. Uh, and because it's repo, the Fed posts uh, treasury collateral with those with the with the depositors uh, overnight. The Fed's got yeah. plenty of treasuries. Yes. So so Dan, you know, you're an economics um, professor, and when I was an economics student, 
and I first heard about, oh, the Federal Reserve controls short-term interest rates, what I naturally thought the Federal Reserve did was basically, oh, I'm the Fed, and Dan, you're a, you're a bank. You deposit money with me, and I give you back the rate. But then, you know, once I, I learned, oh, no, actually what the Fed does, it's the Fed funds rate is the rate that banks lend to each other, and the Federal Reserve controls that by adjusting the level of reserves in the system. Uh, that market, the Fed funds market, is now a uh, you know, a shadow of what it once was. I mean, Joseph Wang has called it, you know, sort of a communist market because there's, you know, the lines just go up and down. It's, it's very illiquid um, because most banks do not use that market really anymore. I mean, you know, they do, but it's like, you know, a fifth or even a tenth of, of the, where the action is. All the action is in the reverse repo facility. And that reverse repo facility, which you, you know, more accurately called the repo deposit facility, um, that is like what I, you know, in my macro 101 class thought the Fed was. It is banks deposited with the Fed. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And, and reserves are that too, but you're right that the reserve deposits still exist, but that's not, mm -hmm. where, the, that's not where the key interest rates are being determined. Um, the overnight repo facility should be a floor for interest rates. It should be hard to have uh, interest rates which are lower than that because why would you accept lower, uh, lower interest on your deposits when you could put them at the Fed for a higher rate? Um, right now, those, those financial conditions are a little bit broken. People are, uh, people are getting interest rates below, below the overnight repo facility rate. And I would expect that to change uh, at the same time as broader financial conditions in the global dollar system change, because that's, that's all, it's all one system. Okay, okay, Dan, I'm going to do a very dangerous thing, which is talk about a chart that would be confusing if we had it and could show it on screen, but we can't even show it on screen. So the last time you appeared, I think in early September with Joseph Wang on this program, we showed an excellent chart of all the different overnight facilities, where I think the uh, reverse repo facility is at the bottom and the repo facility is at the top, I, I think. And, uh, you know, I'm... I'm because we're live and I, you know, I, don't, I don't exactly understand why off the top. And then the, the, the sort of, you know, when right now interest rates are at 3% or 3.25%, but that's to the target range and the effective Fed fund rate is somewhere in between. When you say that rates are going below the reverse repo facility, and I'm just going to call it by what other people call it, Dan, you're right that it is a repo facility, but you know, just for people don't get confused because it confused me so for so long. Um, why are interest rates going below that? And to what degree is that a sign of illiquidity problems or is it, is it kind of a benign thing? Yeah. Um, it, yes, it's an interesting question. Uh, I have some thoughts and I wish that I had a precise answer. But um, what it seems to be is um, that there's just a huge amount of dollars in the system and, uh, and the overnight repo facility has gotten big, but there's still money lying around and, uh, and it's going in various places. But people have so much cash, uh, money market funds and banks have so much cash that they that they still have to put it in a variety of places that uh, where interest rates are are lower still lower than um, still lower than than what you would get from the Fed, which really should be the lowest. Nobody should accept lower, but there's just too much money, and the Fed can't take it all uh, for various reasons, right? And so, like I think I think that the the plumbing is a little bit strained in that in that sense. But the strain is not like in 2008 it was not enough dollars, and in Right now, it's too many dollars is the problem that we have. So it has a very well, different implications for financial stability. When there's not enough dollars, then, then we're close to breaking. When there's too many dollars, here in the U.S. financial system, right, uh, that's, a, that's a different kind of problem. You're accepting less interest than you want, 
but that doesn't, but, but we're not going to, but that's not going to explode. Right. That's going right. to, we're just looking for better channels for the dollars. I would not, yeah, I would not consider that a, a problem. If you ask why are interest rates lower than this repo floor, again, the plumbing is really complicated. Um, uh, I would say, yeah, sure. Because there are too many dollars, too many bank reserves in the system that are results of quantitative easing. Yes, that's going down because of quantitative tightening, but not fast enough. There's still, you know, close to $3 trillion in the reverse repo facility. Yes. But when you say that's a problem, it's not a, you know, you can't, you can't uh, have a financial crisis because of too much liquidity, right? Right. True. Yeah. Uh, that's true. Um, it's a problem. If you read the Fed minutes, for example, they're thinking about this. And I've been surprised at how little they've been thinking about it, honestly. But it, but it gets a mention in the minutes. You know, it gets about a paragraph in each in the minutes that come out after each uh, FOMC meeting. And so they know that this is out there. And what it means for them is that, you know, the Fed sets interest rates and they're trying to get all of the overnight dollar interest rates to move together. So when they hike by 75 basis points, they want all of the interest rates to rise by 75 basis points. And the fact that there's all these rates below their lowest rate means that they're not totally successful in that. Right. They are getting rates to move, but but it's not like a clean a clean rate hike like I think they would probably prefer. Um, but and, so far, this hasn't led them to do anything to try to fix it. And that yeah, is I, one I, of the I'm, I'm really struggling here because who would? Why does it make sense for anyone to ever deposit money and get a yield or, or a return that is lower than what you can get when going to the Fed? Like I view, you know, when I put my money in J.P. Morgan. I view that as 100% safe. Maybe it's only 99.9999% safe. And, you know, it has a, a deposit insurance and stuff like that. Uh, but I think the Federal Reserve is even more ironclad than J.P. Morgan. So why would anyone, you know, if I could, you know, deposit uh, money with the Fed at two and a half percent, or actually currently three uh, percent, um, why would anyone ever lend money for like 50 basis points less than that, or even yeah. two basis points left for that? I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. Is it is a regulation thing that some people can't do the Fed, so that that's why, or yeah. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, the Fed has tries to set low rates, but they don't. You can't. Not just everybody can deposit money at the Fed at that rate. They have the reserve accounts, which are open to uh, commercial banks, and they have the overnight reverse repo facility, which is open to money market funds. So, for you and I to take advantage of that rate floor, we got to get our money into one of those places. Uh, banks have been turning away deposits. Uh, over the last couple of years, they've got too much in deposits in some cases. And so they're telling their customers go somewhere else. A lot of that money has gone to money market funds. Um, but money market funds are not making any, they're not making any profit right now because they've got too much money in They're All of their rates are, are at the floor uh, at the overnight repo facility. So they're not really doing any business. So they, they are turning away uh, funds as well. Um, so now you're left with money. The bank won't take it. The money market fund won't take it. You, you repo it out at something below the overnight repo facility rate because that's the best you can get. And the underlying problem is that there's too much money in the system. I think there's also some other things going on, like uh, if you're, if you're, what you're actually doing is not depositing money, but you're trying to get the securities in, trying to repo in treasuries to do some other trade with, uh, then you might be willing to take a lower rate because it's not really the cash interest rate that you're interested in, but you're interested in getting the security because you have some bet that you want to place with it, so that would be another reason uh, that someone would take a would take a rate lower than the than the floor. And this situation has gone on for some months now. Uh, I think it's an inconvenience for the Fed. I don't think it's an immediate financial stability problem, but it lessens the grip that they've got on financial conditions. Uh, it's it's leaky, as I've as I've said. Um, 
I think that this situation will change when broader liquidity conditions change. Uh, that's why I'll be watching for this in the Fed minutes next week. Uh, in the not in the minutes, but in the uh, set, they put out a, a main statement and a couple, usually a couple other documents right after the meeting. And if something happens with the overnight repo facility, uh, it'll show up there. Um, I, I will look at that, and and if there's any change on that, I think that might be an indication that uh, that we're going to see something different in the plumbing over the next few weeks. Uh, maybe the Fed will choose instead just to wait and and wait for things to get better. Right. Dan, I understand for you know the, the very smart people working at the Fed, like you know, let's say there's someone working at the Fed, and it was this person's job to make sure that the blue line didn't go below the red line. I understand that you know uh, they're judged based on that, and you know they, they might not get a good performance review if the, if the if the blue line goes below the red line. But in terms of like the actual economic system, I'm gonna just repeat what I said, and you know if I'm if I'm wrong, like put, definitely put my put me in my place. You know, you're you're, you're the professor, but um, like that. What's the problem of, of too much money? Because I see problems of not enough money already in like the mortgage market, let's say particularly mortgage-backed securities, like the spread between mortgage-backed securities and treasuries has, has widened significantly. Um, I mean, perhaps that, that's the Federal Reserve goal. Um, you know, you're hearing rumors of asset-backed securities, you know, deals not being able to get, get done. So there's illiquidity in certain parts of the market that need liquidity. There's just too much liquidity in the part of the market that, that doesn't need liquidity, right? Yeah, the, the, right. Yeah, exactly. The problem is where is the liquidity? Uh, so I agree with you. You're, I think you're not wrong. And, and the reason we should all be thinking about this is because the Fed is going to need a reason to stop hiking. They're going to hike until they, until they have a good reason to stop, right? And that's going to be, best case, U.S. consumer price inflation or U.S. Um, uh, PCE inflation comes down gently to a level that the Fed can live with. The target is 2%. Um, worst case, something breaks, maybe something big. And the problem with too much money is that it makes it less likely that anything in the, in the core of the U.S. financial system is going to show the results of the Fed's rate hikes. And what that means is that stuff is going to break somewhere else. And so my concern is um, this, the, the overnight U.S. dollar rates show that things are pretty stable there. So the Fed is going to keep cranking, keep cranking 75 basis points next week maybe another 75 by the end of the year. Now we're, now we're pretty, we're into the four or 5% range. Uh, how much more beyond that before, before the Fed starts to see results? And in the meantime, there's going to be financial strain everywhere else, everywhere other than, uh, than this, these short-term dollar rates where there's, where the, the, there's more dollars than anybody needs. Mm. Thanks, Dan. Uh, you, you have 15 minutes to talk about Bernanke's Nobel Prize or you, you got to go? Uh, I'm good. I'm I'm here. Amazing. Yeah. I'm all right. All Sorry. right. I, thanks, Dan. Okay. So in the financial press, it's reported that Ben Bernanke, along with other academics, won the Nobel Prize in economics. This attracted a lot of attention from you know fi financial journalists and, and media types because Ben Bernanke was the Fed chair who you know bailed out the financial system during 2008. He you know he wrote his thesis about the Great Depression and how the Federal Reserve made a mistake by not uh, you know supplying enough liquidity there. Uh, but I feel like I, you know, my understanding kind of ends there. I don't really know the details of what did he specifically win the paper for? I mean, he didn't win the paper for doing QE in 2008. He, he did it for some, some sort of academic work. And, you know, so I'm really glad that you are here. Again, you know, you're a PhD economist, you teach class, you've, you've written books. I'm going to put your book on screen again, uh, Minsky. I, I really Thank recommend it. Um, it. It's a fantastic read. I'm on, uh, you know, chapter two and I'm, I'm loving it. I, I really do recommend it. Um, what, uh, so, so what did, what did Bernanke and his colleagues win the paper for? 
why was the award given to him for what contribution to the field? And uh, do you agree or disagree with the, with the consensus? Sure. Uh, I disagree with the consensus. <laughs> let me start. Let me start there. And I and I feel like most of the people who read my stuff are, are looking for that. Um, and and I, I'm not really making a secret of it. I don't want to be I don't want to be too mean to to these to these folks who won the Nobel Prize for doing for doing what they do. But let me give you my the, the way that I think about it. Right. Um, Nobel Prize in economics uh, went to three people this year, uh, Ben Bernanke, as you said, and also um, Douglas Diamond and Philip Dibvig. If you say to a monetary economist, Diamond Dibvig, uh, you're talking about uh, a specific contribution to the theory of monetary economics from the early 1980s. Bernanke, we think of as Fed chair, and that's obviously correct, but also uh, Bernanke at a similar time uh, to Diamond and Dibvig in the same kind of intellectual world, you know, they were they're kind of the three of them were working on similar issues at a similar time, um, also put out a paper. Um, all three of these papers are about banking and financial crisis. And that's what they were recognized for um, with, uh, with the Nobel Prize. So what should we make of this? Well, um, I think the thing to say is that, uh, is, that, is that if people come to this subject through watching financial markets, watching central banks, reading the news, maybe reading things that the IMF or the BIS put out. So you're, you're curious about like, how does this system actually work? Economics is, is all over the place in there. But if you go and read academic economics journals, like, those, like, like the papers that Bernanke and Diamond and Divig wrote, you actually see something pretty different. Um, and I, and I, I, I recognize that people, a lot of people you know, aren't close enough to the academic field to see that. I try to show it in certain ways because it actually does have an effect on the world. So for here, for example, right? Um, these theories of liquidity, banking and, and, and these papers, both of the papers that were recognized with the Nobel Prize are about liquidity in some way. Liquidity is an absolutely essential concept to finance as everyone who's in the markets or even just watches the markets knows. Some days you want to sell something and nobody will buy it. And, and there, it doesn't matter what the price is because there's no buyers at any price. And that day is September 2008. Uh, or, or you know, uh, even 2020 had that had that character to it for different reasons. Um, those are the days that that big financial events happen, and those are the days that really matter. The theories that were recognized with the liquidity with the Nobel, which I call the liquidity Nobel, uh, because that's that's the thing that ties these three people together. Their theories bear almost no relationship to what we would understand as the basic mechanics of liquidity in financial markets, the way that central bankers think about it and the way that, uh, that financial market practitioners think about it, which is right. Which, and I think the practitioners are right in this. This is what I mean when I say liquidity. And I think that's the way we should talk about liquidity. In Bernanke's paper, liquidity is an aspect of financial assets that doesn't change, right? So you think about treasuries, they just are liquid in Bernanke's world. By definition, that is a characteristic of all treasury bills that they are liquid. But in reality, we know that there are market makers and there's a system which creates liquidity in that market. And some days it stops doing that. We we're just talking about this, right? Some uh. days the market breaks down and there isn't any more liquidity, even in treasuries. So it's not a characteristic of treasury securities. It's the work that all these people are doing to buy and sell them to make those markets. And that's what, where liquidity comes from. And if they stop doing that because they're afraid or because they're uncertain or because something breaks in the system that they use, then the liquidity disappears. It's not a characteristic of the assets. Thanks. So, Dan, uh, I'm going to say my, my interpretation of what you just said, just to make sure that we're on the same page. Um, so Ben Bernanke is saying, 
okay, treasuries are inherently liquid securities and real estate is an inherently illiquid uh, asset. So you can buy and sell treasuries all day, very liminal bid-ask spread, but you know, you're going to buy your house uh, on one year and then you're going to sell it eight years later with no transactions in between. Oh, and by the way, you're going to have to get a real estate agent and they're going to get 2% or 5% as well. So it's, it's a very, you know, it's hard, it's hard to transact, but you're saying, yes, that is the case in the world that we live in, but theoretically in a world where central banks don't exist to sort of, you know, make money in, in treasury securities, there's much less, there's much more distrust uh, of government debt as well. And also there's some sort of, I don't know, you know, service or maybe it's on the blockchain. Like people are like buying and selling, you know, uh, uh, housing like they're doing with stocks in that world, housing would be more, uh, uh, more liquid than treasuries. Now, obviously there are some characteristics about, you know, some are things more liquid than others, but you're saying that the, the, the characteristic of liquidity can change and that the static, the view that liquidity is sort of an un eternal static characteristic of an asset class that's wrong. And so, so, th and so the yes. fact that that's wrong, like, why is that such a, why, what are the consequences of, of that uh, uh, incorrect view? The, so this is interesting, right? Because, because I'm, I'm faulting Bernanke for this mistake, but Bernanke has also been Fed chair and I don't want to discount that, right? Uh, he's also been Fed chair, which is, it's a really funny contradiction because, uh, because in 2008, uh, financial markets break down and liquidity vanishes for the same assets that were being traded the day before, right? So the Fed, under Bernanke's leadership, had to create liquidity for all of these assets, uh, mortgage-backed securities, for example, um, that had been liquid every day until then and suddenly became illiquid. So, so Bernanke knows this on some level, but, but the fact that liquidity can vanish, the fact that central banks' job in a crisis is to create liquidity all of that stuff is absent from the 1983 paper that he was recognized for in the Nobel. Um, it matters because, the, because these papers uh, and the economics discipline give a lot of legitimacy to central banks. This is, the, this is the academic qualification that you need to have for one of these top decision-making uh, positions at the Fed. Um, Fed governors can also come out of out of business, you know, that kind of thing. But economics is the intellectual structure for for central banking. But the business, the day to day business of central banks, buying and selling securities, quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, thinking about overnight markets or the crisis business, when everybody's suddenly looking at the Fed for a guide or relief or 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 a solution to the problem. All of this stuff depends on ideas of liquidity that are really different from what the academic economics profession says. So when, when the Nobel Committee awards these folks with the Nobel Prize, I think that, that uh, that's just adding to the narrow perspective. It's, it's, it's choosing uh, a really limited way to think about this and putting that up on the highest pedestal that economics has to offer when the practical impl implications of those theories um, are almost non-existent. And central bankers who are in the markets or, or, the, or the bankers or traders that they talk to have a very different way of thinking about these same things, uh, which doesn't have the same intellectual legitimacy. You can't, it's very hard to publish academic papers from a practitioner's point of view, but mm -hmm. they do tell you a lot more about what you need to do uh, when liquidity conditions dry up suddenly. So, uh, so, you know, look, congratulations to anyone who wins a Nobel Prize in any subject. Absolutely. It's a huge accomplishment. But in terms of like understanding what is happening on a day-to-day -day basis, the way I'm trying to do and the way your podcast tries to do, um, 
it's a kind of a, it's kind of a, I think they're off target. Uh, it doesn't really help. So I'm going to ask a question in, in two ways. Uh, what is a current phenomena or over the, over the past year or even past decade that using uh, Bernanke's incorrect framework, you would reach an incorrect conclusion uh, versus you know using your your framework that you have, you would reach a different conclusion. Or another way to say it, I guess is more actionable is like, let's say if I was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, God forbid, and what's a mistake that I would make if I was following Bernanke's framework that I wouldn't make if I was following your framework? Sure. Well, um, you know, the, like right now we're thinking about treasury markets, right? And so the Fed has gone out and surveyed all these treasury dealers and they're thinking about, um, about pushing more people into central clearing counterparties. So changing the market structure for the way treasury securities are, are traded. But in, bank, in, in Bernanke's paper, um, treasury securities are inherently liquid. So there's no way to think about market dysfunction or concentration of certain kinds or or bumps on the yield curve there's no way to think about any of those questions um and so that would leave lead you to to think like there's nothing to do here right how could we there's nothing we want to make changes to the structure of the treasury market in the framework that's written down in that in that work it doesn't have any effect on liquidity there's no way for liquidity to be affected by that um uh. whereas market partition practitioners are saying uh, hey, you know, we saw some big hiccups in 2019 and in 2020. Uh, we saw some big hiccups around 2008, kind of under older arrangements. But like we know that this market can blow up. And if that happens, that would be a huge deal for the entire global monetary system. So can we try not to let that happen? And the central bankers are working with them and trying to come up with proposals. And, and there's a lot of actual concern. But, but it happens without an intellectual, like there's not a, there's not a theory that they can point to to help them solve those problems because the theory doesn't speak to those issues at all. Dan, is part of the reason why, um, like let's just say there's a series of concentric circles of like the, I guess the, the hierarchy of money where like the Federal Reserve and the Treasury are the center of the circle and then outside of that are, are commercial banks, outside of that are you know, in, corporations, individuals, outside of that are uh, foreign corporations, foreign central banks, and, and sort of a, a series of concentric circles. Oh, and by the way, and, and as you go outside, it, instead of treasuries, it's corporate bonds. Instead of corporate bonds, it's stocks. Instead, you know what I mean? It's farther and farther from like the, 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 the center. Do you think it's because Bernanke's framework, a lot of the financial crises he saw, particularly in 2008, were from outside of the central? So it's, oh, it's these asset-backed commercial paper crap. It's subpro it's, uh, you know, it's collateralized debt obligations that are synthetic or they're CDO squares. They're backed by all of this you know, dubious paper, very outside of the circle. So he's like, oh, the outside of the circle needs liquidity, but the inside doesn't because the inside is inherently liquid. Whereas now in 2019, uh, September 2019, March 2020, and perhaps now, like the call is coming from inside the house. It's like the treasury markets and the government sovereign bond markets that are really seeing uh, a, a, the big liquidity squeeze. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. You know, I think if... Really, I think Bernanke probably learned, did already learn the lesson around 2008 because this works from the 1980s. So by the time he was Fed chair, I don't think he, I don't think he had the luxury to keep, to keep thinking that the world was as simple as he might have thought in, at the time he wrote the paper. So I suspect that he learned that during 2008 where there were big, there were big liquidity uh, shortages that showed up and they, and they did eventually get all the way to the center. 
um, through, as you said, through instruments that maybe were unfamiliar to central bankers. But then in the end, it was the securities dealers, the big, big, you know, Wall Street securities dealers um, that had problems and the Fed had to had to create liquidity for them. Um, so I think it would be hard for any anyone at the Fed to not not recognize that after that point. Um, but what's weird Right, wait, is, but but sorry, weren't those securities? It was like toxic private label mortgage-backed securities. It was not tr- tre- treasuries. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Like when I'm used to hearing a liquidity squeeze, almost always like it's it's the left tail, right? So when there's a liquidity trouble in stocks, stocks go down. Like uh, stocks yep. rarely like melt up because I mean they, maybe they do on an intraday basis. But so so I, I know that uh, treasuries rallied, bonds, treasury bonds up, treasury bills up, yields down. Uh, in 2007, 2008, uh, as as we went into this crisis, right. uh, so was there a liquidity problem in the treasuries themselves, in addition to all the the sort of private label crap? Right. No, you're you're correct. In the end, it wasn't treasury. It was the opposite, actually. That mm-hmm. everyone was trying to get out of other things and into treasuries. So the problem was that that uh, those securities mar- that illiquidity showed up in those securities markets, not in the treasury market. Let let me be clear that in 2008, the problem wasn't. Uh, illiquidity in the treasury market. It was it was general illiquidity because of securities dealers' inability to uh, to make markets. So I think that I think you know we could dig a long way into this. And so let me say instead of dig instead of doing that right now, let me say two things quick. One is that um, there are theories of liquidity that help you unpack exactly what happens. And 2008, now, you know, we can write a pretty complete postmortem of 2008 and follow these liquidity issues all the way through. Uh, and I've done that uh, in my short way. And I, and I cite plenty of other people who've done it in their way as well. So it's not just me, right? But in my book, Minsky, which you showed before, mm-hmm. one thing that I do is, is read 2008 and follow these liquidity issues all the way through. And I think it's important that we do that. It's not going to happen again in exactly the same way, but it is going to happen again in some way the story doesn't change all that much. And two, there are a couple of people who are doing this the right way and give us theories. They're not going to win Nobel Prizes, but they give us theories that actually do help us understand. Uh, uh, it's a sim- you know, simple way of thinking about liquidity that, that actually shows you how markets work and they work in lots of different circumstances. And I find that super valuable. Minsky, subject of my book, um, you know, really helpful way of thinking about, uh, about how markets work and how central banks can intervene and what's happening during a crisis. And Kindleberger, um, who Minsky knew about, they worked together a little bit. Uh, and, and Kindleberger really had the global dollar perspective uh, very clear. And so his work is great. And I'll trail uh, Perry Merling's book, Money and Empire, on Kindleberger, which is, uh, which is out now um, in some places, coming out in others. Uh, check it out. But, but Perry talks about, about Kindleberger from a global dollar perspective. And, and so, look, these guys are not going to win Nobel Prizes because that's the way the economics profession works. Um, but if your interest is in understanding the system, um, that would be a great place to start. And that's where I've started. I would echo all of those recommendations. Uh, yeah, you've worked closely with Perry Merling, uh, as well as Zoltan Posar in the back. Uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend your book. Uh, Perry's uh, new book, I, I've bought. I've not read it yet, but I, I really look forward to doing it. Uh, Dan, uh, 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 Minsky's core... Uh, thesis, you know, it it, it relies a lot on inherent instability because of the business cycle, boom and bust. There's too much money. So people are are too aggressive in their expansion plans. And then there's a contraction and and it all goes bust. They they, they can't um, pay their debts. 
so that's in, inherent in the business cycle in capitalist capitalism is uh, boom and bust. Central banks can play their part and have tried to to sort of temper that volatility. So you know, right now uh there are you know on general like fewer recessions and then there were, there were in the 1870s and 18 you know when there was no uh, federal reserve for example um some people can say it's fed has nothing to do with it that, that, that's, that's their opinion um how successful do you, do you think there's a limit on how successful you know because like, i mean the fed can't banish the, the business cycle do you think there's a limit on how they effective they can be and uh, yeah what, what were minsky's thoughts on central banks in that regard uh minsky uh, Minsky said, as you're indicating, Jack, Minsky said, um, financial crisis is an inherent part of capitalism. He said, capitalism is essentially flawed, uh, and the flaw is that it's unstable. So, but he also said, you know, central banks can limit the, can limit the fluctuations can, by providing liquidity in a crisis. And he also said that governments, um, like treasuries, can provide can can limit the real economic consequences of, of a financial crisis, for example, through unemployment insurance. Um, but can they eliminate the can they eliminate these cycles? Minsky said no, and he said no for a fundamental reason, which you're getting at, which is um, that when times are good in capitalism, money gets you know people are willing to extend more and more credit, and they don't. It's harder for people to perceive the risks in that credit, the risk that they won't get paid back. And so they push it further and further. And that's not something that central banks can really eliminate. Uh, that's a feature of capitalism. It has to do with the structure of, uh, of, of uh, money itself, really. And, and it's built into finance on a very deep level. And so the, the you know, conceptual twist to this is that the longer the stability goes on, the more you suspect that some kind of financial stress is building up somewhere in the system. And that's exactly the perspective I'm using, I'm using right now. Um, Minsky, I think, was essentially right, was basically right. Uh, but, but the details change. Times change. Uh, structure of the, of the global economic system changes. The kinds of instruments that people use change. So you can't just, you can't, Minsky doesn't just have the answers. He gives us a way to think about it. And, and it's our job to adapt to that by reading, reading what's happening now and, and seeing where the stress shows up. So this leads me to say, I think right now, Dollar conditions within the U.S. are pretty stable, for reasons that we've said already. But uh, but a Minskian perspective says uh, that that you know stress is building up somewhere, and it's definitely going to break somewhere because because the Fed is going to keep tightening until something breaks. Uh, that that's the feedback loop that exists in this system. The only question is what is going to break, and I guess a, a question that goes with it, a, a second a subsidiary question is when. Um, and, and we're going to find out. Do you have any thoughts on that? I am not going to, I'm not going right. to go on the record with a prediction. I'm uh, if you want predictions, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to suggest you go elsewhere. Um, yeah. My job is, is to point out the structure of the system when it breaks, then I will be right there with you uh, to figure out what it was and what it means. Um, and I, you know, my general predictions I'm, I'm giving you, but, um, right. but uh, you know, in the end, in the end, I find that I find that not the most revealing way to, to go about it. So what I'm trying to do is understand and share that understanding with anyone who wants to listen. Uh, and I'm trying to learn. You know, I've, I've learned a lot uh, over the last couple of years. Some of my, my views have evolved. And if you read everything I wrote, you'll see where that is. I try to be upfront about that. Um, but mostly I'm curious and I, and I want to make sense of this. And I want to share that with other people as best I can. Um, and, and I love the fact that it's always different, you know, like, like one day it's the Swiss national bank and the next day it's the Ethereum merge and then it's tornado cash. And, 
and it's always the, and every day it's the fed so yeah um so so that's what i do Definitely. Uh, Dan, I, I want to ask you one final question, but, but quick, I want to get, uh, let people know just uh, people could find your work. Um, D H Nielsen on Twitter. Uh, the book once again is Minsky and your, your blog on Substack is, uh, soon parted. Uh, Dan, my question is this, and you can also just use this as an opportunity to sort of conclude your thoughts, you know, take, take it wherever you want is there's broadly three things the fed does interest rates, balance sheet, so QE, QT, and then special type stuff, facilities, uh, 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 reserve requirements, regulation, um, but also uh, swap lines. Do you think that door number three, i.e. the other stuff, will be sufficient to solve whatever liquidity problem that, that you, you foresee on, on the horizon, uh, however far away that might be? Uh, in other words, what do you think the odds are that the Federal Reserve can make it through the storm by still hiking rates to 4.75% and not cutting them for a very long time and still doing $95 billion of QT, even though it's actually less for reasons we don't get into. Um, in other words, like, can it just do, oh, a little swap line here, a little swap line here, I'm gonna pass this little facility, this little regulation here, or is there something like, you know, if, if you have tuberculosis, no matter how much Advil you, you take, it, it, you're not gonna get better. Like you need to do a little QE, you need to do to cut rates. Um, so yeah, what, what do you think about, can it just, can the Fed skirt by by just doing these sort of little facility stuff that, uh, that even, even veteran Fed watchers, you know, have trouble understanding. Yeah. Um, well, I'm looking forward to finding out the answer to your question, but here's what, I'll, here's what I can say right now. What I'm seeing and everything we've been talking about, about today leads me to say that I think the Fed probably has got what it needs for now to get through with the U.S. financial system. Banks, security dealers, even U.S. households are, are probably set for the time to come. The thing I'm watching and a lot of people are watching this in our different ways, and, and so this is an ongoing conversation, is what's going to happen in the global system? Because we're moving to a new set of exchange rates where the dollar is more, more valuable, but at the same time, other things are breaking down. Um, the global structure of production is changing, and so the global monetary system is going to change uh, in response. So here's the real question. We've been managing the international system in a pretty loosely, relatively loosely coordinated, co coordinated way since the breakdown of, of managed exchange rates in the 1970s. We've got floating exchange rates and coordination between central banks. You know, the swap lines, that's highly coordinated. But otherwise, they, they kind of watch each other, but they don't ever like sit down and make a global uh, agreement. So I guess my big question on this is, um, what series of events or what series of economic conditions over the next six months could lead to a change in that arrangement where all of a sudden, to save the global monetary system, the big central banks have to coordinate in a more um, upfront, more visible, uh, more forceful way to actually manage the system into, um, into shape. That's something that was done in uh, between, even during the gold standard, that, was, that, you know, that happened uh, on, a, on a routine, relatively routine basis. Uh, between World War II and uh, 1973, there were modes of coordination uh, around the operation of the global dollar system. Uh, that kind of coordination has broken down since then. And I wonder if this system gets strained in uh, to a high degree or in particular ways over the coming months, that it could be that uh, a closer level of coordination becomes necessary. And if that happens, that will be a big day uh, for us. And I'll come on your show and we'll talk about it.
I'd love to have you uh, back, Dan. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Make sure to subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel. Subscribe to Forward Guidance on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out today's sponsor, Ketum, to get $1,000 off on your annual subscription. Uh, thanks again for watching. And, and Dan, uh, looking forward to talk soon. Thanks very much for having me, Jack. Talk Cheers. to you soon.